Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As we prepare for what will hopefully be another memorable European fixture for Manchester United, we're looking back on a forgettable weekend in the Premier League. We'll also scale through the never-ending list of injuries, chat about Eric Tan Hag and his tactics, and answer your questions on the latest episode of the Stradicast. So, following a disastrous weekend in Manchester, one which saw a fourth straight league defeat against Roberto de Zerbe's Brighton, Eric Ten Hag has been tasked with motivating his side for the daunting midweek trip to Munich. The 3-1 defeat sees United fall to 13th in the table, with three defeats from five Premier League fixtures played. We've now got a sense of disenchantment. We've got discontent in the stands. And we have a sense of unknown going along with the off-the-field turmoil. It's not all plain sailing for Manchester United as we're in September of the season. And somewhat surprisingly, after five league games, you've got people writing off the, the season as a whole. Dale, Brian, it has not gone to plan for Eric Ten Hag, Casemiro, Lissandro Martinez and co so far. Sure it hasn't. No, it certainly hasn't. There's key players you mentioned there that from last season, in moments of need, they were the ones that stood up. You know, at the start of the season, we were talking about the attitude they'd shown. We bounced back after that game against Liverpool last year. And that attitude isn't seen. I look at this United team now, Sean, I think they, they're soft. I think they're guilty of being soft. Um, mentally as well, because bit of a trend developing in, in, in the aspect of having the first 15 to 20 minutes of the game going really well for us, Sean, good intensity. Everyone, you know, you're looking at tweets and people around you, they're all positive about, about the game. And that quickly, quickly falls on its arse when a decision doesn't go away. And then we kind of say then after these games that, oh, it's fine margins. But we keep putting it down to that. And I'm now getting to the stage where I think these players need a good kick up the arse 
Um, it's not good enough to be dropping their heads so quickly in games. What you can see the one against um, Brighton, that's not enough to throw in the towel. It's really not. And no, we'll get on to the game, but I want to talk a bit about Hannibal's celebration as well because I thought the reaction to that was uh, was appalling for some. There's more than one reaction on the day that was a little bit uh, appalling per se, for want of a better word. I mean, with Hannibal, let's let's stay on that. You're talking about a guy who has worked his ass off to get into that position. And it's the culmination of years and years of hard work. I know it's in a time when probably fans would have liked to see him run in, grab the ball, run it back to the centre field. But this is a monumental moment for a young player who has been trying everything to get into that position. And personally, I don't see anything wrong with that. I can safely say if I was Hannibal Medry and I scored that goal on my first league goal for Man United, I would have dropped me kegs and I'd have helicoptered myself around the place. And that's being brutally honest. It would have provided some good content for Twitter, wouldn't it? I've seen it done before. <laughs> what has he done? Like He's not ran a lap around the pitch. Jesus Christ, he jumped up in the air and threw his arm aloft. Tried to G up the crowd and get the crowd going for a bit of a fight back, which is what we were hoping to see. There's no crime, there's no, there's no harm, no foul, there's nothing to see here. Anybody giving him shit for that is absolutely and utterly ludicrous. But I think there was, there was a lot of naivety in the stands that day. And one of the things that really, really stood out, and it was something I was going to get to, but we're speaking about this sort of stuff now, was when Rasmus Hoyland was substituted off. It's not very often you hear Old Trafford erupt in such a manner for a substitution. But surely people have to realise... He was being nursed back after an injury. He gave, what, 20, 25 minutes against Arsenal at the end of the game. He's played 60, 65 minutes. Surely the plan from the get-go was to get him an hour, maybe 70 minutes, and get him hooked off and make sure he was okay for the mid-big game against Munich, no? No, that was my logic at the time, and I was kind of baffled at the booze. Um, it's not something that I like hearing at games, but it does happen. Nobody can tell people what they can and can't do, really, at games in, in, in that way. But... um. Look, there's there's a number of messages you could you could take from those boos. You could say, right, it paints a picture that Anthony Martial is not a popular figure amongst Manchester United fans right now. That he's coming on the pitch, and whether United fans are saying they're doing it because of Rasmus Hoyland, they want him on the pitch or not, still says a lot about the player that's coming on for the rest of the game. Um, and I can understand the anger towards him right now because when you look in the first 60 minutes of, of Rasmus Highland, United fans got a taste of what they've been calling out for a bit of urgency up front a centre forward that right he didn't score and he was unlucky with, with the goal that wasn't allowed but it was fucking lovely to see him against a really physical centre centre back but every time he, he got in his line he was doing everything he could to get a body inch just ahead of him you know, busting forward and throwing his body on the line and trying to get that extra touch if the ball came in, if Rashford had played the pass. So, yeah, look, I can understand the anger, but I just don't think it's warranted. Um, Eric Ten Hag put it down to it could be something that could give Rasmus Hyland belief going forward, like a nice introduction to his time at Manchester United. But ultimately, I just think it's pantomime. Um, not in favour of it and had I been there I would not have been included in the Boers Now let's look at the game itself it was uh, I suppose a selection before the ball was even kicked that raised a lot of eyebrows 
something the three of us spoke about beforehand and we were trying to visualize a way that the right wing was going to be filled by the players that had actually gone in there what we saw for maybe 17 18 minutes was an unexpected diamond it was a diamond that i think not only took us by surprise but it took Roberto De Zerbe and Brighton by surprise because I think United started out very, very strong. There was good control. There was good pressing. And I think by and large, all but for Rashford not being able to find a net with one of his opportunities to kick off the game, it was a very strong performance. And the tactical setup in that diamond four could very well be something that we're looking at in moving forward with so many of those midfield players coming back from injury and all of a sudden United have this flux of players to be able to fill that midfield diamond while not necessarily having the wide players to fill the right wing in terms of what's going on with Anthony and Sancho. Brian, from what you saw with the four midfielders, were you impressed up to the point where we went 1-0 down on the day? Uh, I was, yeah. Um, I was, funnily enough, I was particularly impressed maybe outside of the midfield. I was impressed with Rashford. Um, I think the diamond catered for him to to start roaming. And he did. And he roamed. I thought he roamed very well. I thought he got on the ball well. I thought he looked like the brightest spark we had in the pitch. He was very much aggressive, very much going at the defence. He got dreadfully unlucky on a couple of occasions with Brighton defenders throwing bodies at shots in front of him. And on, on another day, I know people are, are, are finding it flavour of the month to bash Marcus Rashford at the moment. Another day, he's got one, two, three goals scored and it's a different game. As we say, like fine margins are the difference in football. He had a couple of great chances. He got unlucky. It's as simple as that. The midfield work, the midfield caught me but completely by surprise. I didn't expect it at all. I really didn't. Um, thought it worked really well. We agreed a great handle on the game. We really bossed Brighton for the opening 20 minutes, we'll call it. And I thought it would, we were in for a good performance against the, against the side who myself and Dale last week, last the last episode, weren't overly positive about facing. Because let's be fair, like it's our fourth straight league defeat to Brighton, which is not a good omen coming into that game. Um, they've given us a couple of embarrassing defeats and they're a really, really good side. There's no point saying anything else. They are a really, really well-oiled machine. Deserby hasn't played good football, got some good personnel on the side. And they can be an exciting team to watch. So I was very, very surprised with how well we controlled the game in the first 20 minutes, given that against Forest, within, what, four minutes, we were two down. Um, yeah, it just, it, it was the strangest game in that we went from being all relatively all over them, carving open chances and, and playing some really nice football, to waving the white flag instantly. I mean, it's... It's so strange to see that. I think it's synonymous with the side at the moment. And as Dale rightly mentioned, they are soft and they do need to kick up the hole. I mean, you can't let your shoulders drop and, and just give up because you go one down or two down. I mean, that's not, it's not the United we've grown up watching and over through the years. It's not our style. Rashford, I think in particular, is probably why people are on his case so much. It was more obvious that he dropped his shoulders. and It was more obvious that he kind of started to lose a bit of confidence and lose a bit of faith in himself and, and started running around the place like a blue-ass fly going forward and not coming back. But um, it was strange. Like the, the midfield and started struggling. The defence is a shambles. The defence at the moment is an absolute shambles. Reguillon looked all right in fairness. He looked half-decent, a bit of energy about him. But like someone made a great point about Lissandra Martin on, on, on Twitter there the other day. If he got... If Maguire got sat down like Martinez did for that goal, 
there'd be absolute hell to pay and pandemonium. But because it's Lissandra Martin, it's not as highlighted as much, but he's been poor for the last while. Casemiro's been off the boil completely. Eriksen's been off the boil completely. I mean, these are key players on the side that you need to stand it up. Todd Bruno wasn't great. Like, they're key players that you're depending on. That when you are in this shit and you do go one or, one or two down, you need these kind of boys to be standing up. And Is it not in them? Is there, is there, is there more behind it? Is, it? is it the off-field stuff that's catching up with them and, and the attitudes are changing and the motivation for the fight isn't there as much as it was? But... I mean, you can't be losing these kind of key players to injury and in the boys that are still there, your key players that are still involved aren't up for the battle. I mean, I don't know. It's 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 a curious one, but like it's not I'm not panicking by any means. It's still early in the season. We've had some horrific injuries and stuff to deal with. So it's just one of those, but I was very disappointed that we did fall so fast. Yeah, but the the worrying thing is in, since the opening week of the season, like I said at the start. It's happening in every game. You know, we've had those 15, 20 minute spells where we look like we're we're starting on the front foot and that, you know, tactically the manager has got everything right, which is what, you know, he's preparing for the game. He seems to be getting it right. But then all of a sudden there's this collapse that he's not able to stop. Players aren't able to stop. Um, And it's a big problem. Just I agree with everything you said, Brian. Just one thing I, I, I don't think we picked up on. Um, in in the in midfield specifically is McTominay being totally non-existent. Now he's the player that came in that made us so narrow in midfield, and and that we, we lacked that width because we didn't play with a right winger. And Palestri was the player that a lot of people assumed would would come in. Now Ten Hag obviously has the the um the the, the reasons for not bringing in Palestri and going with, with McTominay, which I initially thought the weekend was down to McTominay's physicality. One of the issues I see with this United team since the start of the season, really, is that in comparison, we're dwarfs to, against the other teams um, physically. And I thought by adding in the likes of McTominay, you'd, um, you'd be able to counter that a bit. McTominay being non-existent didn't surprise me, but when he's non-existent, he doesn't bring that physicality. He doesn't bring anything. So he was, you know, is it any point going to Bayern Wednesday night and throwing McTominay into midfield for physicality? I'd rather go with Eriksson and accept that he's not very good off the ball. Although it pains me to say it, the reason I didn't mention McTominay in that opening segment is I actually forgot he played. And it hurts to say that because he was that bad. He had an absolute stinker. And he was someone I'd been looking looking to come into the side for his physicality and for his ability to burst forward, but he just had an absolute shocker. Um, you're, you're asking about why we have these 15, 20-minute bursts and things things change back again. But is it is it worth discussing Ten Hag's plan B setup or the, potentially the lack of one? I mean, he's made some really curious substitutions over his time at the club. When things change in the game and, and, and the opposition manager goes for... You know, the opposition manager maybe figures us out a bit and he makes tactical change. Tin Hag's plan B hasn't seemed to work more often than not. I mean, Brighton or Brighton, we may be decimated with injuries and, and lads getting criminally investigated left, right and centre, but Jesus Christ, we're still Man United and we still have plenty of players that's cute to choose from and plenty of firepower to change a game. Like, is the is the plan B just not there? Does he not trust the plan B players to come in and change the game? Is he not is he not willing to give double substitution Garnacho Pellistri earlier, get at him and go for it, rather than risking sitting back and trying your best to get back into it and getting hammered? Well, you've 
you've got right ahead of me there on that because I was going to jump in and I was going to say that we 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 can sit here, we can critique player after player after player, and there's multiple players that deserve that. But Eric Ten Hag is widely accepted to be an astute tactician. I think it's something that we all agree with. Last season, he was one who had the ability to change the outcomes of games on a regular basis. We saw multiple occasions where he turned a situation where he got one point into three points with some tactical astute changes there. Now, thus far in our current campaign, he's coming under pressure, under scrutiny for an inability to act during difficult moments. And a lot of people are touching upon the fact that he's leaving his substitutions very late in the game. Now, I, I'm the first person to defend the manager of Manchester United. I always have been. But like the players, he can't be free from criticism. I think that there's a lot of questionable decisions that the manager is making, particularly in what you have just touched upon. We're crying out for something to to spark a bit of life into the attack. And you're, you're waiting until the 85th and the 86th minute to make those attacking changes, not really giving them enough opportunity to, to get up to the flow of the game. Now, I appreciate all of the games now, generally speaking, you have six, seven, eight, nine minutes of injury time. So there's a whole dynamic that can happen in the final third of the game. But I think the manager in certain cases has been left wanting this season. And I'll be the first person to say that. When we move to criticize the manager, we also need to assess the injuries that he's trying to work around and the deficiencies that this causes him when he's trying to make those selections. You can make an entire team from the players that were unavailable the last day. I mean, you're looking at Tom Heaton, Aaron Mambasaka, Luke Shaw, Terry Malasia, Raphael Varane, Sofian Armabat, Kobe Mainu, Mason Mount, Amadiallo, Anthony, Jaden Sancho. That is utterly astonishing with the amount of players that are unavailable. And there's a multitude of those players that could have totally changed the dynamic. So it's not me trying to give out. I think the manager has to be held questionable for many, many decisions and an inability to be able to react, as you're saying, with a plan B. But there's also variables to consider in the context of the amount of injuries that are faced. And it's something that we should really, really probe into. Well, why is it always Manchester United that seem to have these injuries? And how is it that after five, six weeks of football, we're looking at a list, your arm long? Well, what's going on? I think that new Arsenal doctor that came in is a voodoo doll or something. Maybe he's a plant. He's after coming in to, to try. He hasn't started yet, I don't think. Okay, no, he's doing it. no, he's not got. <laughs> doing it from a distance. He's got some kind of a voodoo over us. <laughs> um, the injuries... I don't know, maybe eight preseason games was too many all over America. Too much travel, too many games, who knows? It's curious, but you mentioned um, you mentioned giving Tin Hag out, and I'm going to do just that. Because as much as he deserves criticism, he also deserves credit for what he's putting up with at the club. He's He's dealing with a multitude of issues off the field. Criminal investigations, left, right and centre. We're, we're afraid to read the next statement coming from the club to find out who's done what this time. We've got unrest in the dressing room, massive injuries. He's got a new keeper with a new style who can't get used to a back four because the back four hasn't appeared yet. It's getting torn apart week by week, which has to be a major struggle for Onana. Like you, we were supposed to see this guy, Onana, coming on with all the passing that he had against with our, sorry, against Arsenal, the passing ability and, and the pinging it around and, and drawing a press you can't do that when he's not used to the players in front of him and you're makeshift in a defence. Um, the, the, the ever-lingering ownership issue, 
I mean, go back to the Ronaldo interviews. We can beat on about it, and we can write, we can write about it, and talk about it as much as you want. But the, the bottom lot, the bottom line is, Eric Ten Hag is dealing with more in his current position as Manchester United manager than most managers on the planet would be able to withstand without walking away. So when people throw around this, oh, Ten Hag should be Ten Hag should get the sack, or Ten Hag should this, Ten Hag should that, I'd be far more concerned that Ten Hag walks away. Not that he gets the boot, because he's not going to get the boot, unless things go absolutely tits up. I'd be far more concerned that the first guy we've seen in a while who has a pair of balls to fight player power and take on the players and willing to put his, his head up and willing to put his chest out and say, listen, I'm the boss, it's my way or the highway. I'd be far more concerned we'd lose him for a reason that he decides more so than the club decides. So, cut him a bit of slack, not... Like these boys that are going for him on social media and wherever else, I know social media is a, it's it's a minefield of bullshit most of the time. But cut the guy for a bit of slack. He's willing to take on Jaden Sancho and he's willing to say that social media post is a lot of bullshit. He's willing to take on Ronaldo and say, right, you did your interview, cheerio. He's willing to take on all the issues that's come at him. I'm not saying he's got every decision right that he's had to do so far, but he's got a hell of a lot of them right. So. He's got credit in the bank for me and I really, really hope people stay by him and stand by him and give him a chance to to get through his rough patch, which he's going through at the moment. As you've just listed out a team that has to, there's a full team that has to come back into the squad yet. The results so far haven't been great, but on reflection, the same results against the same teams last season are very, very close to what they are this season with a lesser team again due to what we have on the field at the moment. So if you go back and look at the results we had against the same teams in the same games last year, I think they reflect quite similarly to what they are this season. We've played two or three of the current top five, unlucky to get beaten at Arsenal, robbed by VAR. I think we've not quite done as bad as it's made out to be done. We've, we've had a couple of little unlucky issues on the field. If they went our way, things could be a little bit better. Maybe it's papering over the cracks, maybe it's not, but... I'm a big fan of Eric Ten Hag. I'm willing to criticise him, but people need to remember, you can criticise somebody, which is fair, and you can have constructive criticism about decisions they make without wanting them sacked or wanting them out of their job. No, that's fine. There has to be constructive criticism because these are all things that I thought, like say, at the end of this season, we're going to list a few things that we expect going into the following year that we expect to improve. One of the, those things that I listed from last year was our waveform. We haven't really started well on that front. But look, these are all things you can work on. I think something you alluded to in a good thread on, on Twitter, Brian, was that Ten Hag has earned credits, um, or a credit, you could say, from his first season of overachieving with that team. You know, we all, when he got the job, the, the, the objective was to get back into the top four and competing in the Champions League. He not only did that by finishing third, but also got us to an FA Cup final and we won the Carabao Cup. So I think he's earned himself a bit of credit this season that like even if, if it doesn't go as well as it did last year and it's it is a bit of a disaster and it's a roller coaster of ups of ups and downs. I think he's earned enough that he he get he gets a bit of patience. Um I I think it's it, the fine picture you can have of a man of a manager with his squad of players is after two and a half to three years. You have to give them multiple transfer windows. Um unfortunately for Ten Hag when you arrive at a club like Manchester United, you expect to be backed. You expect to be backed like one of the top clubs, and that doesn't happen here. So he's waiting um, with a lack of sense of direction from the owners. And I think that's something that's been picked up on as well. 
from Gary Neville and the likes of Rio Ferdinand as well as pitched in on it, that it's very hard to operate um, every every level of staff when people don't know the future of their job or the club itself. Glazers aren't telling anyone. NDA is signed. We still don't know if the club is going to be sold next month or before Christmas or next year or in the next two years. We're still totally out of the loop. None of this helps the manager. And I think, you know, it's an important message because after the game against Brighton, United fans, I know there was boos during the game, but they stayed behind afterwards and, and clapped off Ten Hag. I think they're important gestures because he needs to understand as well that no matter what's going on in the background, no matter what you read on social media, United's fans are behind the manager. That has to be the way. I don't see any anything that should change that. The question I'd ask someone, if someone honestly said to me, they'd like us to change the manager right now, or very shortly, I'd say I'd say this. What do you want to do? Like, what's what's your plan? Do we just bring a manager in for a year, hit a rough patch, sack him, and start again? So we've we've just bought into a whole new direction under Ayrton Hag. We're buying players to fit his system. Our transfer window's been based around Ten Hag's style and Ten Hag's wants. And then you just get like it's a Chelsea it's it's Chelsea part two. You get a manager, you back him a little bit, you kinda of go his his way for what Pochettino out by now. Did one Pochettino out by now? If he came at the start of the season they were having that start, hundred yeah. percent. So like, do we do that? Or I mean, let's be realistic, like I hate comparing ourselves to our old enemies, Arsenal, but Arteta was going through an absolutely shocking time. They wanted him out. The club stuck with him and it's paid off dividends. And now he's got a really nice side playing good football and it's paying off. And what whether they achieve trophies and whatnot to follow, at least they've they've followed through and backing their manager. And I mean, is that not the whole point? When Tin Hag came in, we were kind of after giving up on the whole, right? Van Gaal has to go. Sorry, Moyes has to go. Van Gaal. Van Gaal has to go. Jose. Jose has to go. Ole. Ole has to go. We won't mention Randy because he was like a, a moot point, but you can't just keep doing that. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't bode well for the side. You can't just keep throwing jigsaw pieces at jigsaw puzzles that are different people's puzzle. And Tin Hag has his own puzzles. He's his own his own mindset and his own way he wants his club to move forward and his team to move forward. He's working under obstacles that are outside of his control. But we have to stick it out like and, and, and give the man time because What's going to be gained by getting rid of Ten Hag? First of all, who the fuck wants to come into Man United at the moment? We're a shambles. So how do you attract another top, top manager? Steve Bruce. Yeah. I mean, that, <laughs> that's probably the level you're going to end up with if you keep going this way. I mean, I asked a guy, I had it out with a guy on Twitter and I asked him, who do you want to bring in if, if you want Ten Hag out? Which he does. He says, oh, um, uh, Conte. And I was like, the Conte that sprinted out the door of Spurs, the first sign of trouble. Oh, Give me a... Break. Like. The thing is, right, in 2023, there is so many armchair tacticians and so many people that base their opinions around the likes of football manager and FIFA. And I've said this time and time again, social media is awash with adolescents and people that don't really know what they're talking about. But if you can get any sort of traction and any sort of followers, all of a sudden, the shit that you're firing on the wall is going to stick. It's been an underwhelming start to the season. It has followed uh, maybe a slightly underwhelming end to last season. But it was 31 games unbeaten at Old Trafford. And and what people need to realise when you're chopping and changing managers. When Ten Hag came to the club, he was tasked with bringing some semblance of discipline, structure. And he is the head of the snake and it's his way or it's the highway. 
he's brought in X amount of players. Okay. Now, if you were to get rid of Ten Hag tomorrow, you're bringing in a new manager who has to deal with all of Ten Hag's players. It doesn't do any good. And as you've said with Arteta, very similar with Klopp previously, very similar with Guardiola, you have to back the manager. You back the manager and you back the process. And if you back the process, bit by bit, it will come together. There's, there's no way, shape or form you can possibly say after five games of this campaign, having overachieved in every which way that he did last season, because regardless of what people say about the amount of money spent, Ten Hag took over a squad that had players consisting of four or five previous managers. So you have to give time. You have to understand that there's going to be bumps in the road. When you overachieve in a season, it doesn't automatically mean that the following season is going to see more overachieving. The likelihood is you're going to hit that semblance of neutrality and you might have to go back a couple of steps before you can go forward. I will be the first to admit I am slightly concerned about what I've seen. But I don't think that means that it's all dead and gone. We spoke about Rashford earlier on. All right, Rashford hit nine chances on goal against Brighton. He took nine shots on goal. And that is the most he has ever had in a game in his career. There's so many positives to take. And you can look at all the statistics and the analytics that I spend my time digesting. And Manchester United have created so, so many key chances that we're not putting away. These games, especially against Arsenal, we saw about Garnacho. You see against Brighton, the ball goes over the line. I mean, if that goes in, it's a totally different game. And people need to realise that a couple of games can cultivate momentum and momentum can cultivate a streak which can change the run of a season altogether. All it takes is a victory midweek against the team that we're going to be speaking about. And God knows where the season could plateau from there. One of the things I would ask people to do if they want to judge Tin Hag, and it's probably when I'll judge him myself if it comes to a judgment day, when he's had a time to implement his style, one of the greatest changes he's made to the side is David De Gea is gone, Andrea Nana came in. This is a completely new dynamic to the back. It's a, it's a draw press, a ball-playing goalkeeper, for want of a better term, who we've not had a chance to see in action, barring a bit against Arsenal. Let him, let him get this system going. Let's see what the Onana ideal plays out like. When our... We'll call it our strongest back four, or within reason, our back four, maybe missing one here and there, when they're playing. When he's able to play the midfield he wants to, Mason Mount just came into the club and got injured straight away. Again, I'm assuming he's a key player to Tin Hag's plans. Not quite sure where he fits or how it works, but I want to see what happens. Um, Sean, I know you pointed it out to me, and I know you've made it clear how. <laughs> just saying, I want to see it visually, with my own two eyes, how it happens. Let's see what happens when Rasmus Hoyland has played more than 80 minutes of professional football for Manchester United. Just breathe, breathe, just breathe. Exactly. Exactly. Let the man do his job. I mean, he's he's literally, he's trying to run a marathon with one leg tied to the other at the moment. He needs time to show us what his plans are. And the only way he can do that is these players come back from injury. Players come back from potential investigations. He has a relatively full squad to work with again. He gets a couple of games with that full squad under his belt. They buy into his ideals and we see what Tin Hag ball, for want of a better term again, is going to be about. And you're, you're speaking about Onana and, it's, and it's, it's a great example. Not only is Onana trying to get used to the new culture, a brand new league, new everything. He's had five games in the league and he's had five different teams. 
you know, there's there's there hasn't been an opportunity to be able to gain any sort of fluidity with the same type of players because there's constantly chopping and changing. Even the simplistic fact that Dallow has been going between left back and right back, people need to realize that even something as simple as that changes the entire dynamic. And that that's true of every position on the field. You get used to over time. You get used to your player beside you, or in front of you, or behind you. You get used to their runs, and you get used to what position they're going to take up. And it becomes second nature. I mean, the best teams you've ever watched play in football, they don't even need to look at times. They'll just play the ball to where they know that player is going to be. And this is what Onana and, to a lesser extent, Mount and like the likes of Casemiro, all these boys. This is what they haven't got at the moment. They don't have that that second nature that they know that Anthony's going to be here, Rashford's going to be there, Hoyland's going to do this. This is the type of diagonal run Hoyland's going to make across the defence. This comes with time and, and and minutes in the tank. We're nowhere near that at the moment. I mean, we're not even close to seeing what this team can or, can or should or will be. So it's just, it's, it's a bad patch. It's a couple of shit results. None of us like it. It's never enjoyable, but keep the faith. What really got on my tits over the weekend was um, just the continuation of it, really, is how we made a new signing during the summer. You talk, spoke about Mandre Anana, and there's almost, it's like a minority that every goal we concede, this absolute bollocks comes out that the hair would have stopped it, the hair would have saved it. And I remember the day's mistakes last season, which drove so many people to fury. And there was like two hour montage videos appearing on social media every week of his errors. And they're so forgetful of it. And I think what it comes down to, though, he's, he's no exception on Anna because this is just a beast of, of, of what it is to, to play for Manchester United. You come and you have, you have every corner trying to nitpick at, at you. If it's not that minority, it's that minority that want to have an agenda against you. It's not helpful, but someone that touched on it as well the other evening was um, Dimitri Mitchell. It's worth. He's an interesting follow on social media if, if you don't follow him. He's a former. He's a funny player. one, right? Yeah, he's a funny one. Yeah, he's outspoken, and um, some of his opinions might upset a few. But anyway, he he just kind of spoke from his perspective about players that he big players that he witnessed at United while he was there. So we named like signings like Angel Di Maria and. Players that face lots of scrutiny. You know, I think Di Maria deserves a lot of that, but interesting that he named them. And he just said that when you play for a club like Manchester United, everybody wants to take you down. It's the biggest club in England. It's the one everyone's looking at. You're after making reference to a man in the head. And it was something I wanted to pull up. It's very easy for social media to jump on this, particularly after Sky Sports are doing it after two games. Well, like, that doesn't Sky... help. That doesn't help. No, no, it doesn't help at all. After two games, Sky Sports had a chart up about the amount of saves that Onana had had made and the amount of shots he had faced versus De Gea in his last X amount of minutes played for Manchester United that was comparable. And when you have that sort of stuff, you're building this agenda on the television, which is then coming through onto social media and it's generating talking points. And this is so toxic and it is this toxic behaviour that everybody just seems hell-bent on lavishing towards Manchester United. One of the biggest problems we face as football fans, is recency bias. People are so quick to look at De Gea or De Gea's last couple of games and Onana's first few games. If people are able to use their memory and think back to when David De Gea first came into the side, maybe the lads that are doing this can't remember it or they don't care to remember it or they're choosing to ignore it. De Gea was a shambles when he came to United first. He was a young kid. He was an absolute disaster. He had a couple of calamity games. It took him time. 
like it does with everybody, it took him time. And when Andrea and Anna come into this side, the first thing I said to myself, give this fella time. I'm not sure about his style. I'm not sure if I like it. It is what it is. But he's going to have a couple of dodgy games. He's going to have games where he doesn't make the save that he probably should make. The game was the very same at the start of his career tonight. I know he was in the, he was a younger keeper at that at that stage, but it's still a new club. It's still a new fa- new faces, new style, new everything. The fellow needs to be given a chance. Give him a bit of breathing space. Let him let him have a couple of games. Could take him as with any player. It could take him three six months to get going. When he gets going, I'm sure he will see a top class decent keeper. But for now, I'll I'll, I'll afford him the odd questionable miss of a save here and there. I will touch on something that you're saying there right before we finish on this because it's one of those weird ones that sticks in my memory for a reason I cannot say. I don't remember what the game was. I don't remember what the particular topic was, but it was in De Gea's first season. And I think we were about maybe, we'll say, half a dozen games in. Obviously, he had a howler. He made a mistake that became questionable. But I remember even back then, Sky Sports was led by Jamie Redknapp at the time. And they were speaking about how this fella is not a Manchester United goalkeeper. This fella is not fit to be between the net. And you can see the differential between him and the previous greats like Van der Sar and Schmeichel, and he's never going to cut the mustard. So it doesn't matter what year, what decade, they're constantly trying to shoot players down before they even get an opportunity. And this is where the mentality comes into it. I want to shift ever so slightly, and I want to shift on to what will be classed as the meat and gravy of this podcast today, gentlemen. The tantalizing prospect of a midweek trip to Germany and a meeting with Bundesliga giants Bayern Munich. Now, since that famous night in 1999, the sides have met eight times, United enjoying a solitary 3-2 victory in 2010. Now, as I stated on a previous podcast, these are the nights that every fan should dream of. I'm not going to hide my disenchantment that I can't be on a plane with the two of you. But this is going to be an absolute blockbuster. I mean, it's, I suppose if you're looking at it in terms of statistics and form, it's not reading very well for Manchester United. But it's a glamorous European midweek night against a side that many people would class to be favourites. How much are you looking forward to getting over there? Excited, as always. Looking forward to the trip. And also remembering when we went to the new Camp last year against Barcelona, when we didn't have a chance, seemingly. And we were wrote off before the game and not not to tell any lies, didn't really see us getting a great result up myself. Thought it was very plausible that Barcelona could do a job on us. And was quickly reminded that we are Man United and these are the games that we live for. Big occasions, big nights, doesn't matter what side is out, what starting eleven plays, there's something about it. And there's nothing better than a Champions League game against top-class opposition to get any player on the pitch to lift his game and raise his standards for the night. So, um, Coming off the bad couple of games we've had, you'd be forgiven for thinking we're going to go over there, Harry Kane's going to score a hat-trick and we're going to get absolutely battered. Maybe so. But a small piece of me remembers leaving the new Camp last season absolutely gutted that we didn't get the win that we deserved. So I'm very, very much interested to see what kind of side comes out Wednesday night. Very interested to see what team he plays, what tactics he goes with, what way he sets out his shop, and what result we come away with. I must must admit I'm also a small bit looking forward to going to Oktoberfest beer halls with Dale. And of course, we'll make a trip to the Manchester Platz and the, the Munich Memorial, pay our respects. So 
it'll be an interesting one. I'm obviously going, the only reason I'm going is the podcast is paying me to go as Dale's carer because being four foot two, he could get lost in the crowd. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll make sure back in one piece. I have one of those leashes you put on kids and you tie it onto your side just to make sure they can't go too far away from you. So I'll take good care of him, don't worry. I'm just there hope he doesn't get arrested. <laughs> I thank you very much I wish I could tag along with you for this it's going to be an absolute cracker I mean the, the atmosphere over there is going to be fantastic in terms of a footballing perspective obviously we know that it's it's massively lined up against us but I'm very curious in terms of who he's going to line out with because we've seen on a couple of occasions with Ten Hag we've seen his side get a pasting and the general response, Dale, is that he turns around the very next game with the same starting eleven, offering him an opportunity to go and atone for, for what has happened in the previous game. Do you think that's a possibility? It's a possibility because he still hasn't got enough options to really change things around. You know, he's, he's still in, in a few holes selection-wise. And I think, look, I, I am expecting a, a tight game against Bayern Munich, tighter than what probably people some expect. Um, but... A part of me kind of hopes that he doesn't try and be too intelligent tactically and trying to win a game a certain way by nullifying um, Bayern Munich. They are very, very strong. Um, and if you look at Bundesliga sides, they tend to play with a very, very high line. And that was the case. Again, I'd like to see Ten Hag go with the, the route of let's just try and catch him with pace down, down the wings. Um, now, that would possibly mean starting Pelestri, which is very, very unlikely considering he didn't start against Brighton at the weekend. But look, you never know. I think um, if we if we're guilty of maybe trying to be too clever, making some questionable decisions like we did at the weekend, he'll come back to bite us in the arse. I just hope we play to our strengths. And get a look ultimately too, I'm not going there saying that need to win um, I'm not ex- no one's expecting a win I don't think but we come with a way from there with a draw I'll be very very happy and I think Brian will be too I think every so often it's okay even though it's something you don't want to do to put your hand up prior to a game and say look we're going into this very very much as underdogs and there's no one any logical fan is going to be looking at this and thinking anything other than that we saw many many performances under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer previously which were labelled as individual brilliance and a lack of tactical nose when realistically they were set up in such a way to be able to hit on the counter. And regardless of what sort of form Manchester United are in, we have players that are very, very capable on the counter, very, very capable on the break. And you'd imagine when you go to Germany, you're going to have a lot less of the ball and it's going to be about operating in moments and defending very, very strong as a unit. Like you said, with a draw, I'd be delighted with a draw particularly with the record we have. We've never actually beaten them in Germany, I believe. And as I said, since 99, we've played eight times. We've only beaten them once. So everything is lining up against us here, but it's football. And as we've said on so many occasions, it's 90 minutes of football. Now, granted, I said with the additional injury time that's on now, it's more like 100 minutes of football, but anything can happen on a given night. And I'm like you, Brian. I will always come back to that tie last season in the new Camp and just how... This group of players at any given time can just show everybody that they can click. And maybe I suppose that really outlines the fact that they're capable of firing anybody under a bus whenever they feel like it. But this group of players definitely have 90 minutes in Germany where they can leave people shaking their heads as to why they couldn't do it against Brighton. Yeah, 100%. 100%. They turn up when they want to at times, which is a fair enough assessment, I think. Um, I'm hoping they turn up Wednesday. 
I'm, I'll take a moment of individual brilliance or whatever way they used to say it about Oli on Wednesday night if it means we get the win. But um, I'd, I'd like to look at the formation he's going to go with for a second. And I'd love to see him go for a 3-5-2 slash 5-3-2 setup. Given the fact that our defence is a little bit ropey at the moment, I don't think it would be the worst idea to maybe pack out the defence a little bit. Especially with a Harry Kane marauding around the place causing chaos unless Martin has two foots in early on and puts him out of it, which I wouldn't be overly against either. But um, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind seeing that kind of a setup. Go back to basics, try get, try get a sensible defensive approach, hit hard in the counter and see what we can do. Harry Maguire to come in and marshal the defence, so is what you're going for there, Brian, yeah? I'm going for a Maguire masterclass redemption day on Wednesday night. Harry Maguire to come in and show the world that he's not actually dog shit. And that he has got a place on the side. I won't hold my breath. Are we any way confident of going there and rattling them early on? Is it going to be a, a situation of going there, sitting back early? Or are we any way confident of going there, having a bit of confidence with the badge, with the, the nature of the history between these two clubs, and with the scrutiny that is on the football club at this moment in time, that surely they can go into the dressing room and they can look themselves and just say, you know what, now is the time. Now is the moment where we can kickstart our season and we can go and do something tonight. Sean, you had me until you said confidence um, because I don't think this team has much of it. But I, I, <laughs> I, 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 do think, I do think you're touching on something because it, maybe it's just, just me. I, I don't like going into any game ever and, and kind of thinking, oh, we're going to lose this. It doesn't matter how bad things are. Um, you know, you mentioned the game against PSG, New Camp last season. Some big nights where a lot of players that we're talking about kind of shocked us um, and they certainly need to do that right now not only for ourselves but we need a bit of positivity going, going into the into other competitions well their start of the league has been too slow don't want to start um, the European campaign on the same foot and it easily could happen because after such a start in the league I don't think of a worse trip or a more difficult trip sorry um, to be facing than Bayern Munich now I wrongly said worse because it could turn out to be absolutely perfect for us too because we go there on Wednesday night, get a positive result. Um, come Thursday, Friday, we're recording this podcast and the tone is completely different. Well, that's it. And one thing I'll always pull back on and people may critique me for it because they may think that I'm being naive, but I don't ever really go into a game, I suppose, unless we're playing amazing football, confident of anything. But I go into every game with a fresh sense of optimism that maybe today is the day, maybe today is the day they'll realize of the privilege that they have playing for this football club and that badge. And the fans like you guys who are going to be on that plane, spending your hard-earned money to go over there and to support them. And I'm just hoping that there can be some sort of a positive result. But that's a fan's perspective. And we have plenty of fans across the world that actually listen to us and are getting in touch with us every single week. And we're very, very grateful, as we say every single week. Now, the one thing that we want to get across is that we want your messages, your questions, your words to go out on every single podcast. And we have a couple of good questions coming in here today. And Brian, Joey Taber has asked, is it worrying that the Zerbe made an adjustment and that there was game over? that tactically has Ten Hag not lived up to his reputation. Just a thought, because I still back the manager. Hashtag Glazers out. Hashtag Glazers out, I love, because I can't wait for the day to come. 
Um, so that's definitely a great point to start off on. Um, I think, to be fair, we probably covered this topic, and I probably covered it myself a bit earlier in the podcast. Um, I am a bit questioning of his plan B. Does there be looked to have figured this out after maybe 20-odd minutes? And it was curtains. We didn't react to it. So, yeah, it's a fair question, and it's a fair criticism. And again, criticism is perfectly welcome. Any constructive criticism of any manager or player is always welcome in football and always right to do so. It's your right as a fan, and it's your right as a football man to have a view where you don't just blindly agree with everything. I certainly don't. Um, yeah, yeah, I'd agree. He's, he's shown some technical naivety at times. But again, on the flip side, like you said, Sean, earlier, he's shown, shown some great tactical news in certain occasions. So it's a tough one. It's a tough one. I don't know, is it down, is it down to the manager or is it down to the players not having a pair of bollocks to, to fight? Yeah, yeah, probably bits and bobs of both. Dale, Tucker Titch has come through. And he says, Brighton's 11 the other day cost a meagre £16 million. Now, it's something you and I speak about quite regularly, but he asks, why can't United buy cheap players? They can. Their model is set up very differently to Brighton, though. And Brighton are a club, and speaking to, to Brighton fans ahead of that game on Strategy News, spoke to a fanzine editor, they they were very quick to kind of suggest with the likes of Evan Ferguson that they see him as someone that they're going to try and make the most value off. You know, that that that's all it is, it's a product. And Manchester United view things differently. We buy players and we want to win the biggest honours. So we don't buy players to sell them. And we look to buy the premium players and we mix it up, hopefully, with academy graduates and, and whatnot. Um, I think this criticism... It's a consistent one this weekend on social media because it's something broadcasters like to mention, especially before cup games. You see United play against I don't know, Shrewsbury or whatever. You'll see how much the, the budget costs for that squad compared to ours. Um, it's never going to be any different, um, I'm afraid. And that's what happens when you support one of the biggest clubs in the world. It's something I was actually talking about quite a bit this week. And I'll put one scenario to you. United look for a new winger, go out and sign a 26-year-old Japanese £2 million signing Matoma. Imagine the outrage from the fans. Yeah, yeah. Not acceptable to our fans to buy that type of player. I mean, realistically, 80% of our fan base is expecting us to sign Mbappe every summer. So, the kind of signing is a bright name for, like you touched on there, Dale. It's a different demographic. They're looking for value, low-cost signings who can come in. If the signing, one of the biggest things, if the signing doesn't work out, they can easily shift the player on and they're not stuck on these massive contracts. On the flip side, United go buy, go buying big name players, big money transfers, big massive contracts, headlines all over the world. It generates interest in the club, it generates interest in the transfer, but it also leaves us many times with players who haven't worked out on contracts that we can't get, get rid of money and for costs that we can't recoup. So, the model is completely and utterly different. I could never see United going down the route of buying players in the bargain basement, looking for players to come off and become worldies out of nowhere. Rarely see it at a club of our stature anymore, and any club of that stature, to be fair. So I think it's horses for courses in, in the transfer market, and Brighton are very, very adept at what they do at identifying talent at, at the right price. And again, if the player doesn't work out, it doesn't really matter because it hasn't cost them a fortune and they're not on massive money. They can move them, whereas we can. Less risk. Yeah, less risk. So, Sean, another question in from Dave Cleaver. 
those Rashford's selfishness need debating. So that obviously ties into the game at the weekend. There was a number of chances where he could have played the ball across to Rasmus Hyland and didn't. But obviously, we'd hope that over time that they'd get better together. But do you think that needs debating, Sean? His selfishness, his all-round game. I do, I do. But I think that it's 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 a it's a wide spectrum and it's a large conversation. I want to say one thing, one line before I go on with this. Just touching on what you guys were saying there. You just go back in the last couple of years. Look at Dan James, just for example. Dan James is a prime example of United targeting a young, talented footballer from a lesser league that has potential to grow. And he comes into the football club, has one poor performance, and he's lamented as an absolute waste of money. And then we get hit with the confidence-stricken scenario of United social media and the toxicity towards our players, and it ruins him. So that's why there's a different model, a different basis, and a different fundamental. When it comes to Rashford, I think... Rashford is obviously going off last season and, and currently at this season, he's he's our he's our outlet, he's our attacking outlet. The amount of goals and assists that he generates, they're 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 amazing. And what he produced last year was phenomenal. Those type of players need to have a sense of selfishness about them. Okay, all of the best strikers in the world, the best goal getters in the world have that bit of selfishness about them. And that's how they get the figures. That's how they get the goals. At the same time, you're looking at that game against Brighton. And as I said previously, he had nine shots on goal. Now, there was at least two or three opportunities I can I can think of whereby the better option was to square it for Rasmus Island, And he didn't do so. Now, maybe that's down to a lack of game time that the two of them have together, a lack of understanding with movement. Or maybe it's just Rashford trying to propel himself on from last season and maybe being slightly frustrated with his lack of goals considering how strongly he finished last year. Either way, I think... I don't know if selfishness is, is, is the word about it. Maybe he just... His decision-making is probably the, the the larger trait because two or three occasions, he could have squared it, opted not to, took the ball with an extra touch, hit it with his bad foot, and ultimately didn't score. But I think he has that willingness and that desire to, to find the back of the net. And whether or not we like to talk about it, these players are driven by records, they're driven by figures, they're driven by goals and statistics. And I'm pretty confident Rashford is looking to build on last season and really sort of build himself not only in a club and a European focus, because we're looking at a guy that's after being ignored for a Ballon d'Or nomination, despite doing everything he possibly did last year. But we're also looking at a guy who's been continuously overlooked for England by Garrett Southgate. So I think he's probably just got an eye on trying to generate his own portfolio and maybe does need to take a step back and realise that the team will have to come ahead of a player from time to time. Just just a quick one on Rashford on his selfishness there is an element of that but you also have to be very careful to try and hinder away at that kind of aspect of his game because there's been times in this team where we've criticized him for not taking enough risks you see Sancho beating a man hitting near post when he should be crossing it or whatever having a go having a shot at goal kind of prefer to see that than not seeing it at all um so it's it's you can be crit- you're only going to be you're always going to be critical of it when the ball is not in the end in the back of the net. Um, but I think something that we should be looking at in the coming weeks, especially play like some Burnley away, is can Rashford and Rasmus Highland strike up a bit of a combination because now Rasmus Hy- Rasmus Highland is going to provide that outlet, and there's less reliance on Rashford to score those thirty goals a season like he did last year. And it's something we spoke about recently. It's one of the biggest critiques we have of, of Sancho and Anthony. 
They don't take on their man. They don't go at the defender. They don't try and carve open that chance. But yet Marcus Rashford does it and he gets absolutely fucking lambasted for it. You can't have your pot, your cake and eat it. I mean, do you want the player to try things and be creative and try and drive forward in an attacking mind and, and something we laud Garnacho for gets the ball, goes at goal? I mean, is Rashford doing any different and he's getting absolutely hammered for it? No, he's not. If it comes off, if Rashford scores two against Brighton the weekend from doing what he just did, he'd be getting absolutely blown to, up to bits. Best player in the world. Oh, he's worth 200 million. He's this and he's that. But because a couple of Brighton lads threw themselves in front of a few shots and it didn't go to the back of the net, as Dale said, he's shit all of a sudden. He's terrible. He needs to be sold. He's this. I mean, <laughs> there was a curious tweet I saw last night by Paul Galvin, ex-Kerry GAA player, now fashionista for Dunstores saying that he would instantly sell Bruno Fernandes and Marcus Rashford. Now, aside from the fact that he's talking about his absolute hoop, two players that, in a similar vein, try things, try to create things, doesn't always come off, and both get killed for the same thing by the fans. I mean, Bruno can be frustrating. It frustrates life over me at times. He's trying to create things. But if you don't have someone trying to create things, well, then they won't create anything at any stage. I mean, you can't shackle Bruno. You can't shackle... Rashford. Only try to create when it works. Yeah, 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 that's it. it it's, you're only allowed to do it if it's going to come off 100%. I mean, Paul Scholes sprayed 50-yard balls throughout his career. They didn't all reach their man. Some of them are great highlight clips, but, I mean, it doesn't work out all the time. You still have to try and you still have to create. It's not a perfect science. Football is variables, pot look at times, and fellas taking a risk and taking a chance. So the, the, the pile-on in Rashford for the weekend, to me, is a lot of bollocks because... I thought, personally, what he was trying to do was take the game by the horns. He went at the defence. He carved open a couple of chances. He drove at him. I've been wanting that from a winger all this season. I haven't seen it from Sancho, and I killed him for it. Haven't seen it from Anthony, and I killed him from it. I'm not going to give out to Marcus Rashford for doing it. I will give out to him for dropping his shoulders and being a petulant little child afterwards and not putting in the shift because we're 2-0 down or whatever it was. But I'm not going to ever criticise someone for being attacking and trying to score goals. And I think ultimately from that game, any other day, he could have found a net twice. You know, any other day, if he has nine shots on goal, he's getting at least one, if not a brace. And as you said, it's an entirely different story. It's a different narrative. And all of a sudden, England's golden boy is going to be held high on the shoulders of everybody once more. But thankfully, with our fickle fan base, that is not the case. So let's hope he can put him into this on Wednesday. And let's hope we can get the results. And just like that, we'll put a lid on another episode and we will cross our fingers and our toes for a positive result in Munich. If you want to get in touch with us, you can do so on Twitter. You can catch me at Sean Connolly 85 Brian will tell you he doesn't want to speak to you and you don't want to speak to him, but he really does. Brian, how can I get in touch with you? Day trip and red, do not follow me. And Dale, last but not least, how can people get in touch with you? follow me on Twitter at O'Donnell Dale of course you can follow Strati News and Stratycast as well make sure you subscribe to Stratycast on Spotify Apple Podcasts and Acast and leave a review that helps us get more listeners and that's a good thing so thanks for listening again and taking the time to give back feedback hopefully we're talking about a win after Munich and so Shire has won it Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. 
laundry? Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.